You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. <laughs> I'm going, bro! Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, I don't know. You know, uh, you'll probably be about as good as I was. That's kind of the way it works, you know, and I, I, I was below average. You know, so, whoa. So you'll probably ultimately rank somewhere around there, you know, so... Really, you'll excel at a lot of things, just not this. I don't want you out here shooting this ball around all day and night, all right? All right. Okay? All right, go ahead. somebody tell you you can't do something not even me all right all right you got a dream you got to protect it people can't do something themselves they want to tell you you can't do it you want something go get it Period. That uh, clip is from a 2006 film uh, called The Pursuit of Happiness. It's probably one of Will Smith's best films. And uh, in the film, he uh, plays the role of Chris Gardner. It's based on a true story, a guy who lived in San Francisco, single father, uh, raising his son, uh, faced a bunch of challenges, faced homelessness, various other challenges, overcame them, and uh, became a really successful stockbroker. And he, he's, made, he's started multiple companies since then. He's sold them. He travels around, tells his stories, written a book. It's a pretty, pretty amazing story. But the story captures the American dream, the idea that through hard work, anyone can achieve material success. And it's, it's a dream that's put out in front of us, and it's really something that a lot of us, we live for, and we seek to attain this in our lives. Here's a, a common definition of the American dream. The American dream is achieving material prosperity, success, and upward social mobility through hard work. And like I said, this, this idea, this dream, this is often something that we aim for in life. And it's a dream that it's impacted our expectations of what we're going to get out of life. It's impacted our expectations of what it takes to get the good life. And it's impacted us often in ways that we're not even aware of because it's the American dream. And I'm an American. We're in America. So this is our dream. I mean, this is the American dream. This is what we're told we're supposed to live for. I mean, I, I like to think, I really do like to think that I'm an independent, kind of free will individual, and I have my own dreams and my own aspirations. But the older I get, I am continuously confronted with the fact that I am really impacted by my environment. I'm impacted by this dream, this dream that's been put out in front of me that I've been told that I'm supposed to live for. So not only does this dream shape our expectations and what it takes to have the good life, but 
the dream is a very well-funded dream. And I know sometimes when we hear that something is very well-funded, we think that, oh no, it's like a conspiracy and there's people behind it that have ill intent or ill will for us. But that's not necessarily true because if you think about it, achieving the American dream means you're going to have more money. And with more money, you can buy stuff. And in a consumer-based economy, well, the economy will grow if you have more money and you buy stuff. So really, every sector of our economy wants to see this dream happen. So they promote the dream. It's in, it's in movies like the clip we just saw. It's in books. It's in TV shows. It's as we drive down the road, we see billboards. We have conversations with people. We might not even use the term the American dream, but the ideas of the dream are just constantly being put out in front of us. This is a very well-funded and heavily promoted dream. And oftentimes, it's being promoted and even funded in ways we're not even aware of because there's so much at stake. Because if, if we achieve the dream, again, we've got more money, we spend our money, and the economy grows. This is the American dream. And for me, I've increasingly kind of realized how much I've bought into this dream, specifically when I'll be talking to people. I'll have a conversation with somebody. Maybe I'm getting to know them. And I hear about something in their life where they could have the dream. They could have the success. They could have the money. They could be living a certain lifestyle, but they're intentionally choosing not to. And usually those people, they stand out. And they don't always stand out in a good way because they're not living the dream. This is our dream. And they've decided not to live for our dream. So they stand out. There's something kind of weird about those people because this is the dream. We're supposed to be living for this, right? And they're, they're off living for something else. What's going on? What's wrong with them? A lot of times, even those people that they live outside the dream without even thinking why, we'll judge those people. We'll respond and just be like, well, there must be something wrong with those people because they're not living for the dream. I mean, this is, this is our dream. This is the American dream. And that, that kind of points to a challenge and our ability to think well. The challenge is our tendency to judge before we analyze. When you judge, what you do is you make a final decision about something. When you judge, you determine the value or you come to a conclusion. It's either good or it's bad. It's smart or it's stupid. You just kind of, here's the final word. But when you analyze, you're separating into parts for study. When you analyze, you're trying to understand what's going on here. Is there, is there some good stuff that we should pay attention to and then other stuff that we should avoid? So judging is not wrong. It's not bad. There are, there's a time and a place to judge. But we need to be, be careful that we don't just jump to a conclusion without spending the time to really analyze and ask the question, what's going on? How can we divide this into several parts and really consider this? So with our time this morning, we are going to explore and analyze our dream, the American dream. What is this dream? Is there good in the dream? What are the problems in the dream? And see if we can come to some conclusions. So let's start by analyzing the good in the dream. We're going to look at some good things in the American dream. The first thing that really stands out is the importance of hard work. Hard work in the American dream is important. While Different generations might put different items inside of the dream. Almost everyone agrees that a requirement to achieve the dream is hard work. And what that points to is this understanding we have of a cause and, cause and effect relationship between hard work and results. Hard work gets results. And actually, the Bible agrees with this too. Here's a few verses where the Bible teaches this idea. It says this in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 4. Lazy hands make for poverty. But diligent hands 
bring wealth. Another verse, Proverbs 21, verse 5, says, The plans of the diligent lead to profit as surely as haste leads to poverty. In these verses, the person who's referred to as the diligent person, they're a person, they're energetic. They, they work hard. They're looking for work to do. They're active. They stay busy. They're a person who, they're thorough. They tie up loose ends in their work. They don't cut corners or look for shortcuts in their work. They endure. They, they work until the job is done. They push through. They stick at it over time. That's what a diligent person is. Another verse, Proverbs chapter 20, verse 13, says this. It says, do not love sleep or you will grow poor. Stay awake and you will have food to spare. And we know this, this isn't just saying, hey, stay up late playing video games. Oh, and you'll be worth all this money. That's not what, this is saying, hey, there's, there's a time and a place where you have to give up a good night's sleep in order to get the job done. There are seasons and projects where you have to say, I'm not going to sleep very much this week or this month or this period of time because the work that I have in front of me requires me to lean in and put forth special effort. And that's a good thing. I mean, it, it is hard. It's work. I mean, that's why we call it work. And we've got to work hard at it. So it's not always the most enjoyable, happy, refreshing thing. But work is a very, very good thing. And work is something that we need to do. And these verses point out there's rewards to the work. It says there's wealth, there's profit, there's food to spare. And if you, if you pay attention to what's happening, you pay attention to what's happening in the world around us, you see this rings true. I recently read a story about a man named Ronald Reed, and he was a maintenance worker and a janitor in Vermont. And he lived a very humble life. He was a pretty quiet man, unassuming you know, people, he was a nice guy, but he kind of flew below the radar. And he didn't work like high power jobs, anything flashy. And people were shocked that when he passed away, he passed away recently, when he passed away, he was worth $8 million. And people were shocked. Here's this janitor, this maintenance worker. How in the world is this guy worth $8 million? And when you read through his story, you find that it wasn't because, you know, he had he had beachfront property that he got into the market when nobody wanted to live at the beach and then all of a sudden it just skyrocketed or you know he didn't invest in some new tech or figure out bitcoin before everybody else did he just he worked really hard and he was wise with his money and when he saved he had a lot when he when his life came to an end he had a lot to show for himself and he he didn't work he wasn't a doctor he wasn't an attorney not the jobs that we usually think of he just kind of flew below the radar worked really hard and it paid off. Hard work gets results. Actually, as people have studied the rise in American wealth and how it occurred so quickly, because it, I mean, it occurred really quickly. In a short number of years, America went from not being a country to being the wealthiest country. They've studied this and asked the question, how did it happen? What they've repeatedly pointed to is hard work. They actually gave it a term. It's called the Protestant work ethic. They called it Protestant because a high percentage of Americans were Protestant Christians. And in the Protestant work ethic, they largely get their ideas from the Bible, unsurprisingly. And there's this belief, and it comes from the Bible, that, that work is a gift. That God, not only is work a gift, but God is involved in our work. And the kind of work we do matters. If we work hard and our work is of quality because God is involved in our work, that's significant. And that through our work, through the, the nine to five, whatever it is, the 40 hours, the 50 hours, the managing a business, whatever it is, the, the homemaker, through our work, what God does is God gives us the power to influence and shape the future. 
I mean, that's an amazing idea. And it'll revolutionize the way that you work. And so they, they repeatedly study this and point to this Protestant work ethic. This shaped America's rise over the years. And this idea, this idea comes out of the Bible. Here's a verse on it. Colossians chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. It says, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart is working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. I mean, if you really embody this idea, this will completely change the way that you approach work and the way that you do your work. It says that we can, we can bring honor to God through our work. A lot of times we think that you know, oh, I've got to go to work and, you know, put in my time. And then, you know, then I can, I can go to my growth group or I can go to church on Sundays and that's where I honor God. But in my job, you know, that doesn't really count. This is saying that counts, that matters. You bring honor to God by how you work. So you're supposed to do it with all your heart. And all the jobs, even the, even the jobs we want to avoid, even the jobs where we know they need to be done, but we're hoping somebody else sees them and then somebody else takes care of it, we're hoping that we can just push it off and delegate it and, you know, they'll have to deal with it. Those jobs, all those jobs, they're supposed to be done as if God was our direct supervisor, as if God was the one who was going to come and inspect our work. I mean, imagine the quality of your work if you really thought that, if you really thought that this stuff that nobody else sees, nobody else knows that it happens, God sees, God knows that it happens, and he's going to come and he's inspect it. I mean, the quality of your work is going to skyrocket. And then for motivation, I mean, usually we're motivated by the size of the paycheck or the perks or opportunity for advancement. But what this is saying is even if the pay is poor, even if you're overlooked for, prom for promotion, God sees the quality of the work and he will reward the work. He'll reward you for what you do. You might not get the blessing right now, but the reward will show up. It will come. I mean, this is, this is an amazing idea. I mean, employers... <laughs> As an employer, just imagine if all your employees worked this way. I mean, that would just be amazing if they would do that. And then for those of you that are employees, it's like you want, you want to figure out how do, you, how do you advance? How do you leave a good impression on your boss? How do you open the door for future opportunities? I mean, you, you approach work this way. This is, this is good. This is part of the dream that is very, very good. Hard work is a good thing. So just like the Bible says, Whatever you find to do, work at it with all your heart. Work is good. The American dream points that out. There's a cause and effect relationship between work and results. Another thing in the dream that's really good is the idea that your past does not determine your future. This is maybe one of the most attractive parts of the American dream. Your past does not determine your future. Actually, often the people that we celebrate as examples of the American dream they embody this idea. This is somewhere in their story. So you've got people like LeBron James. He is referred to as the kid from Akron, Akron, Ohio, referring to his humble beginnings. Or you have somebody like Steve Jobs who was given up for adoption. Or you have Oprah Winfrey. Her mom was an unmarried teenager who worked as a housemaid. And these stories that we tell ourselves and we repeat in our culture and we hold up as examples, these are appealing because they give us hope too. They give us hope that our past doesn't have to determine our future. This is a really important idea. But this idea is not found in every culture and society if you study the other cultures and societies around the world. You actually find very different ideas. In, uh, in India, 
You have a system called the caste system, C-A-S-T-E, caste. And in the caste system, it's not just in India, it's in other countries too. In the caste system, there are five main groupings in society. You're born into a caste, you're born into a level. And whichever level you're born into, that determines your job. The higher up you are, the better jobs, the lower down you are, you're a street sweeper, or you're even as bad as an outcast, and then it's hard to get work. But your birth determines your ranking. You cannot move up a caste within your lifetime. Your hope is if you do a good enough job, well, then maybe you'll reincarnate and be able to move up in the next life. But in this life, you don't move up. In India, 20% of the population makes up the upper castes. 80% of the population is lower caste or outcast. You don't see this idea of your past not determining your future. The family that you're born into determines it for you. When America was founded, you had the British class system. In the British class system, it was a, it was a similar idea. The family you were born into determined your occupation. If your father was a farmer, he probably didn't own the land. He worked for somebody else. But if he was a farmer, guess what you were going to do? You're going to do the same thing. You're going to be a tenant farmer just like your, your parents were. If your dad was a blacksmith, that's what you were going to do. You were born into it. Actually, until I think it was 1958, this was new to me. I didn't realize this. 1958, Parliament in the United Kingdom was divided. The House of Lords, which you can imagine who occupied the House of Lords, people born into prominent families, lords, and then you had the House of Commons who represented everybody else. I mean, until fairly recently, if you weren't born into a prominent family, you weren't going to become prominent. Even during the Revolutionary War, when men like John Adams and others, they would go over to Europe to get funding for the war or negotiate peace or treaties for, with different countries, one of the things that frustrated the ruling class in Europe was that these men from, from America, they were not from upper-class families. They didn't have this prominent background or this pedigree. They, they brought this idea with them that your past does not determine your future, and that really frustrated a lot of people who were living in that world where, oh, your past controls your future. It's determined by what you're born into. This idea is not found everywhere, but one of the places this idea is found is this idea is found in the Bible. Here's a verse, a couple verses on this idea. If you read through the Bible, Actually, not verses, but stories. The story of Joseph. Joseph was a man who was sold into slavery in the Old Testament in the book of Genesis. He was imprisoned on false charges, but then over time he rose to be the second most powerful man in the country of Egypt, the nation of Egypt, the, the biggest power of that period of time. You have stories like a woman named Rahab who she was a prostitute, but she ended up getting her life turned around, and now her name is included in the lineage of King David, the most prominent king in Israel's history, and then also in the, the lineage of Jesus. And her being included is significant because in that period of time, the only names that were concluded, included in a lineage were the names of the father. So for her name to be included, that's, that's like a, a highlighting, hey, this is special, this is significant. With Jesus's earliest followers, the disciples, at one point they're referred to as uneducated and ordinary. I love that. Uneducated and ordinary just means you're not very smart and there's nothing impressive about you. Uneducated and ordinary. Then just a few chapters later, they've gained so much influence that it's said that they were turning the world upside down. The social structures of that day, they were flipping them on their head because these men had so much influence. From uneducated and ordinary to turning the world upside down. 
See, if you study through the Bible and you read the stories, what you realize the Bible teaches is that you are not defined by your IQ or your SAT score or the family that you were born into. The Bible teaches that each and every one of us was made by God, and that means that we have value and we matter and that we're important. And it means that all of us, you and me, we are all just a few decisions away from changing the trajectory of our futures. The Bible teaches that your past does not have to determine your future. Again, that's a revolutionary idea, and it's an idea that you find in the American dream. During the Civil Rights Movement, this is one of the things that Martin Luther King Jr. was fighting for, that your past or the color of your skin, the family that you're born into, your race, shouldn't determine your future. It shouldn't limit you. This is what he wrote in a letter from a Birmingham jail. He said this, he said, one day, the South will know that, the, that when these disinherited children of God sat down at lunch counters, they were in reality standing up for what is best in the American dream and for the most sacred values in our Judeo-Christian heritage, thereby bringing our nation back to those great wells of democracy which were dug deep by the founding fathers and in their formulation of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. In his fight to end segregation and to undo unjust laws, his argument is not just, I feel strongly about this, I think we should do it. His argument is, we need to look back at our heritage, our Judeo-Christian heritage, saying that these ideas come out of the Bible. People should be treated this way because God said that people should be treated this way. And then from there, he points to the founding documents. He points to the Constitution, the Declaration of Independence. He says, they are, these ideas originated in the Bible. They are written into our founding documents. So let's live up to that. Let's do that, and let's treat everybody this way. Let's remember that your past should not determine your future. This is, this is a key part of the American dream. It's an important part, and it's a good part. So as you break it, as you break it into pieces, what you realize is, there is good in the American dream. And there are ideas in the American dream that they're largely shaped by what's presented in the Bible. There's good, that hard work is good. We should all work hard. Our past does not determine our future. We need to, we need to remember that, and we need to fight for that. There is good in the dream. But there are some problems in the dream. Even though there's good, there are problems, and the problems are problems that we need to spend some time paying attention to. And the first problem in the dream is what I'll call the priority problem. The priority problem. My generation was, we were raised with a clearly defined path laid out in front of us for achieving the American dream. If you wanted to achieve the American dream, if you wanted financial success and security, you, you, you worked hard in school, you got good grades, you did the extracurricular activities so you would distinguish yourself in the college admit admissions process. You get into a good university, you choose a degree that's going to result in a good income, you graduate with good grades, you get the job, you start working, you get married, you have two incomes, you have kids, then you get your kids started on the path as soon as you can. That was the, the path that we were raised on. And if you break out the pieces of the path, there's not anything that's like necessarily wrong with anything on that path. Those things all can be good things. There's nothing necessarily wrong with them. And actually, as researchers have studied this path, they've actually given it a term. They call it the success sequence because they found over time, if you kind of boil it down, as people follow a specific sequence, generally, they're more financially secure. They, 
start with the education, then they get the job, then they get married, then they start having kids. It's not always true, but generally speaking, when people follow that path, there's more financial security. Here's the problem, though. Financial security, it's not the priority of this life. That's not the most important thing for us to live for. Jesus addresses this head on. He says this in the book of Luke, chapter 12. And he told him this parable. He said, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I'll store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This very night, your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but is not rich towards God. The guy in the story, he's a hard worker. He grows his business. He tears down his barns and he builds bigger ones. He's, he's not called a fool because he's rich. He's not called a fool because he saved for the future or because he worked hard. He's called a fool because he's not rich towards God. The priority of his life was being set for life. He thought that life was about him. And so he worked hard for himself. He wasn't rich towards God. He, he followed the path. I don't know what the path was in that period of time, but he followed the path and the path worked. It got him the riches. It got him the success. It, it got him the ability to just kick back and take life easy. But the problem is that's not the priority of life. The priority of life is being rich towards God, investing in what God says is valuable, living for what God says is important, taking God seriously and approaching life the way that God says to. Just like you become rich with material stuff, it takes, it takes your time, it takes your, your best thinking, it takes you using your resources wisely. Same thing with being rich towards God. Just instead of doing it to advance yourself, you're saying, okay, how can I use my time and my thinking and my resources to advance the things that God says are important, to make valuable the things that God says are valuable, and to do it in a way that he says to do it. That's the priority of life. The priority is being rich towards God, not getting rich in this life. My wife and I, we've got three kids right now, and uh, actually the fourth is going to be born in right around two months. We're going to have four kids come June. And um, I, I want my kids to be successful in this life. I mean, of course I want that. What parent doesn't? I want my kids to get a good education. I want my kids, you know, if they can get a good job that provides and leads to financial security, I would love for my kids to experience that. Those aren't bad things, but they're not the priority of life. Life is not about them getting what they want. Life is about them learning how to be rich towards God, valuing what he says to value, living for what he says is important. That's the priority of life. So as a parent, one of the things that I've got to be aware of is we live in this culture and the ideas are floating around us and there is good in the dream. I can't just completely reject the dream and say, no, don't work and, you know, don't treat people fairly and, you know, don't try to get educated. You know, I can't do all those things because those are good things. But I also have to be really intentional to not thoughtlessly set them on a path that will teach them the wrong priorities. And if I'm going to do that and do that effectively, I can't just tell them that because we all know how it, how it goes when our parents tell us one thing, but then they do the opposite. If I'm living for the American dream, if that's my priority, guess what my kids are going to live for? They're going to live for the wrong priority because that's, that's dad's priority and dad had the wrong priority. So if I'm going to teach my kids rightly, 
I've got to make sure my priorities are lined up. Another problem in the American dream is what I'll call the goal line problem. The American dream gives us a goal line. It's called retirement. I know this is kind of touchy. It's called retirement. You worked hard. You saved. You've got plenty of money. You know, kick your feet up. Woo, you made it. You're retired. You finished the course. You know, the dream is done. You've achieved it. You've crossed the goal line. But back to the story that Jesus tells about the rich man. The rich man in the story, he thought he had, ch- he, had, he had crossed the goal line when, as it says, he had plenty of grain stored up for many years. He had enough money, and his financial advisor said, you can do it. You can stop working, and you're set. But again, here's the problem. The goal line is not in this life. As he points out, he says, in the passage, your life will be demanded from you. What that's referring to is that when we die, all of us are going to stand before God and we're going to give an account for what we've done with our lives. And the trajectory we're on when we leave this life will determine the trajectory for the next life. So it's not, okay, I reached the goal line, I put in 40 years, you know, what's, what's 20 years of kicking back? No, it's, that's not the goal line. The goal line is not in this life. This uh, last month, March, I uh, took a break from television um, no, like, big reason other than I want to see if I could, and then I also um, kind of wanted to focus on some other things, and I was, you know, spending a lot of time watching TV, so I took a break, and um, it was, honestly, it was easier than I thought it was going to be, because my favorite sports are not on in March. My favorite sport <laughs> is football, and if, you know, Saturday and Sunday would have rolled around, and Monday night, and then I would have been like, oh, no, this was a mistake, but it wasn't. It was pretty easy. But um, in the years of watching college football in particular, I've noticed a trend when it comes to player celebrations. So I want you guys to see this uh, clip real quick. Travis Wilson to pass on third down and five. A lot of time looking down the field. He's got a man open. Down the field. It's caught. do that. I think they got some balance in the passing game. (laughs) The play is still alive. Oregon's running the play back. Wait a minute. They said he fumbled it going across the goal line? Oregon's running into the end zone and they're saying it's a touchdown back the other way. Oh my gosh. Are you kidding me? They said that that Kalen Clay let go of the ball before he crossed the plane. Oh, you've got to be kidding me. And Oregon runs it back for a touchdown. What? We've got to see this on the replay. And instead of this game being 14-0 Utah, it's going to end up being 7-7. To all the Utah fans, I'm sorry to bring that up. It's painful to watch. I think my favorite part is when the announcer goes, what? What is he doing? You don't want to drop the ball before you cross the goal line, okay? The goal line is not in this life. It's not. If you're going to retire, great, retire. And then use that time where you're not working for an income to work to advance the things that God says are important. If you can retire, great. Use those years of influence and skills and leadership that you've developed to be a part of the things that God are doing. Just like me as a parent, I mean, I, I can't, I've never parented before. I'm figuring this out as I go. You know, I'm not, I didn't come into this being an expert. 
And so I ask questions, I get input, I'm figuring out how to do it. Same thing, when you get to retirement, you can't just go, well, you know, I'm not really sure how you do that, but I do know how everybody else is doing it. No, you gotta say, hey, what does God say about this? How can I use these years? Don't drop the ball before the goal line. The goal line is not in this life. So the American dream. The American dream has some really good things in it. Hard work, our past does not determine our future, but it has some problems, problems that we need to think about and we need to be aware of. The American dream is not wrong. The American dream is just not enough. It's not big enough of a dream. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that you have given us a dream to live for that is big enough and a dream that we won't look back on with regret, a dream that we can live for that will not only be a blessing and a benefit to us, but a blessing and a benefit to the people that we love and to future generations. I thank you for that, God. I thank you for including us in your plan of using our lives to advance your purposes. God, I pray that you would help us to realize that the American dream, while it's not wrong, it's just not big enough. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.